From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Long before the impeachment proceedings, President Trump was under scrutiny by the House Financial Services Committee. If Trump stays in office, Colorado Congressman Ed Perlmutter says his mission will be to hold the president accountable. Why keep stonewalling this? Why not present these documents? Every president up until this president turned over their tax records. Our year-end conversations with members of Colorado's congressional delegation continue. Then, CPR's Grace Hood broke a big climate story and at the same time caught wind of a trend. This growing public interest in air quality monitoring, I had no idea. That people logged onto computers to check out what's in their air. That's right. Plus, we remember a state lawmaker who wasn't afraid to speak her mind. She put her hand up and said, well, where is baby Jesus? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Democratic Congressman Ed Burlmutter believes President Trump should be impeached. Perlmutter was leery early on, but now says the case has been made that there was an attempt to extort Ukraine for dirt on a political opponent. Perlmutter represents Colorado's 7th District, which includes Golden, Arvada, Lakewood, Westminster. We're checking in with members of the congressional delegation as the year winds down. And today with Perlmutter, we'll talk about marijuana and Mars. But first, he says his mission in 2020 will be to hold the president accountable if he stays in the White House. I asked for an example. Well, for instance, we in the House Financial Services Committee two and a half years ago asked for bank records out of the Deutsche Bank pertaining to what we think may be money funneled from Russia to the Trump campaign. Well, Deutsche Bank ultimately was prepared to turn over the documents the president objected. Then the district court said to Deutsche Bank, turn over the documents. Then the president appealed to the Second Circuit, which said, turn over the documents. And still the president and uh, the administration refused to turn over these documents. And we'll just have to see where that goes. So that's one thing, certainly within the purview of the financial services committee and something we started two and a half years ago. I mean, one place it could go, of course, is the U.S. Supreme Court, which uh, currently has more conservatives than liberals. It does. And uh, I think the president has appealed that along with the order from another court to turn over the tax documents to the Supreme Court. I just wonder why keep stonewalling this? What's the big deal? Why not present these documents? Every president up until this president turned over their tax records. I think it's interesting that we're talking about impeachment, which has largely been spearheaded by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi almost a year after there was something of an insurrection in Congress to oust her as speaker. At the time, you argued that the results of the 2018 election were a mandate to change leadership. You eventually changed course on that. But do you wonder what might have happened if Pelosi had lost her position? Well, at At this point, I can tell you, I think I was wrong in seeking that change just for change's sake. Uh, This leadership team of Nancy Pelosi, Steny Hoyer, and Jim Clyburn has really done an excellent job of helping guide our new members and our Democratic members generally in connection with this session of Congress. So, and I think Pelosi particularly has done an excellent job in uh, leading our caucus and in 
uh, dealing with, you know, first a big government shutdown. And I think she was particularly reluctant to move forward on any impeachment. Uh, wanted to see where the Mueller report went. You know, even though there were things in there that were very disturbing, I, I think for her too, the effort to bribe a foreign government with aid that the Congress had already appropriated to help Ukraine defend itself against Russia, I think for her too, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Wasn't there a commitment early on, though, that Democrats would proceed with impeachment only if there were bipartisan support for it? What happened to that commitment? Or where the facts led. And there's a whole organization called Republicans for the Rule of Law, which has actually run ads uh, across the country that ask for the Republican members of the Congress and the Senate, as well as the White House, to uphold the Constitution and to uphold uh, the concept of the rule of law, that nobody is above the law. And I hope, and I may be wrong in bringing this hope, that my colleagues, and many of whom truly are my friends on the Republican side of the aisle, will say, okay, that's enough. In September, after six years of work, the Safe Banking Act, which you co-sponsored, passed in the House. Uh, It would allow the cannabis industry access to the federal banking system. Uh, The bill now is in the Senate. First of all, does this practically legalize the drug federally? I mean, would it take it off Schedule 1? No. It is pretty narrowly tailored to dealing with the banking and financial issues. Got it. So that if a business is legal in a particular state and it does business with its landlords and its accountants and everything else, that the cash can go to a bank. Right now, under federal law... Isn't that kind of a mealy approach? In other words, why not take the bold approach and just say, we're going to legalize this federally, or at least the federal government will recognize in states that have legalized it that it's legal there? Ryan, it's not a mealy approach. Uh, The legislation we proposed to get the cash off the streets because of the public safety problems that it causes. We've had a murder of Travis Mason, as you know, in Aurora because so much cash was available in that dispensary and there's just so much cash that's generated by this business, we need to get it off the streets. And so since 1971, when marijuana was made illegal or anything with THC in it, this is the first legislation that had a hearing, got a markup in committee, got to the floor and we had 321 votes. There are other pieces of legislation to deschedule it, to deal with taxes, to deal with testing and those kinds of things. But from my committee point of view, financial services, the focus is on the banking transactions and the cash. Is this going to fly for Mitch McConnell in the Senate? We think so. We added hemp Uh, which in Kentucky has now become a major cash crop. Hemp has had some problems. We've had hemp being shipped from Kentucky to Colorado that was seized in Oklahoma and and the drivers of the trucks thrown in jail in Oklahoma. So there's a hemp piece that may be attractive to Mitch McConnell, and there is some banking stuff that I think is attractive to Chairman Crapo from Idaho to move this bill forward. And if it does move forward, 
it would be kind of the exception over there, not the rule, because 275 bipartisan bills have yet to be acted upon by the Senate. You also serve at Perlmutter on the Science, Space, and Technology Committee, where last month you introduced a bill, a companion actually to one in the Senate co-sponsored by Colorado Republican Cory Gardner, that promotes research and observation of space weather. With so much political divisiveness over climate change and weather events here on Earth, uh, why does space weather get bipartisan support? Why, Why is researching it so important? So space weather deals with radiation that comes off the sun. And when it's explosive through solar flares, that radiation can affect uh, the Earth in a whole variety of ways, dealing with our communication systems, our electrical grid. It has the potential for knocking out our satellites. And apparently there is bipartisan belief in solar flares, unlike climate change, human-caused climate change. (laughs) Yes, I think we, our astronomers and those that study the sun, I think in a bipartisan way, yes, would agree that there are solar flares and that there's potential damage that comes from that kind of activity on the sun. You are also pushing for the U.S. to send astronauts to Mars in the year 2033. Uh, What's the thinking? Why is that the magic number? Well, we, a couple, three years ago, uh, we had testimony from a couple NASA Uh, senior engineers. And I asked him, I said, look, you know, we were on the moon. At that point, I was 47 years ago. Now it's 50 years ago. I said, I figured we would have been to Mars by now. And they said, no, you know, for a whole variety of reasons, starting with the cost of the Vietnam War, that didn't come to pass. And I said, well, you know, I'd like to see us continue to do space exploration. Uh, When can we get to Mars? I think we should get there. And they said, Well, 2033, to put the pieces back together, the building blocks back together, 2033 would be the prime year because in that year, the orbits of Earth and Mars are the closest that they'll be for decades and that that cuts off months of travel time, space travel time, and is much safer for our astronauts because of the radiation coming off the sun that we were just talking about with respect to space weather. Well, let's wrap up with Earthlings. Uh, In September, September you hosted your 100th Governments in the Grocery. This is where you set up shop in a supermarket, invite constituents to come and talk with you about their concerns. And Congressman Perlmutter, I just want to play a clip from one of these events that occurred back in 2009. Okay, so this is the King Supers. Yeah. Hundreds of protesters showed up there, angry about President Obama's Affordable Care Act. Uh, here we are a decade later, and I'm just wondering, like, what changes have you seen in these events over the years? Do they get more caustic? Do they just always vary? Does it tell us anything about the state of the electorate or the democracy? That was the one that was the the biggest and most boisterous. And it wasn't hundreds of protesters, but there were 
the crowd was about half in favor of the Affordable Care Act and half against, and many of them had come in from outside of my district to kind of, you know, shake up what ordinarily 25 to 50 people coming one person at a time to talk about issues really specific to them. And they could be major issues. They want to talk about climate change or they want to talk about peace in the Middle East or could be specific to the family about a Medicare issue or a veteran who hadn't gotten a medal. So generally, these things have been very personal, generally pretty tame. And that one was big and boisterous, and we got through it. And it took about three hours, and the King Supers moved us from inside the floral department to outside in the parking lot. (laughs) But it it worked out. Was that just because and of the, the, the crowd size or just the... The size was just, it, it would have overwhelmed the store. But we've done a hundred of these now. And we had a pretty uh, boisterous one a couple years ago when President Trump had just been elected. It was at Natural Grocers over in uh, Golden, where we had a couple hundred, maybe 220 people uh, that came into that. But other than those two specifics... They've all been much more personal, much more individual, but every now and again, something either because it's orchestrated, which I feel like the one that uh, was up in Brighton was very orchestrated, lots of folks bust in just to kind of, you know, inflame things, but most of the time, folks really have specific things they want to talk about. Congressman, thanks so much for your time. You're very welcome. Ryan, thank you for your time. Democratic Congressman Ed Perlmutter represents Colorado's 7th District, which includes the suburbs north and west of Denver. We are reaching out to all the members of the congressional delegation as this year winds down and a new one begins. At CPR.org, hear our conversation with Republican Scott Tipton. Word came over the weekend that he'll face a primary challenge in 2020. Lauren Boebert owns a restaurant in Rifle, Colorado, where servers open carry as they serve customers. Some elected officials want more money to monitor methane. This comes in response to an investigation by CPR News into potentially flawed data about how much methane is in the air. CPR's Grace Hood is on our climate team and led this investigation. Hi, Grace. Hey there. Let's get everyone on the same page. What exactly is methane? Where can it be found? Right. And why should you care about methane? Uh Uh-huh. Methane, it's scentless. It's odorless. You can't see it in the air. But it's a very potent climate warming gas, about 86 times more potent compared to carbon dioxide. Interesting. We talk so much about carbon, but methane really is a culprit. Well, it's not the quantity of methane is not as large as carbon dioxide, Mm. but it's much more potent. So it can come from landfills, agricultural production. It's also the main ingredient in natural gas, which can seep from oil and gas production. So it's really become a target of lawmakers in recent years. Yeah. and, And I suppose you've laid out some of this, but help us understand why they are so focused on methane in particular. Well, it goes back to 20 2014, that's when the state approved groundbreaking rules that seek to limit the amount of emissions of from oil and gas equipment. So, you know, we really started out with a pretty simple question. Are those rules reducing overall methane levels? And it turned out there was this monitor deep in the heart of oil and gas country. 
in Platteville, Colorado. Do I have that right? Yeah. Okay. What did you find in Platteville? So between mid-2017 and mid-2018, many of the data points the state recorded in Platteville were lower than methane levels recorded at the South Pole. And that's highly unlikely. Scientist Gabrielle Patron reviewed the data. She originally flagged this problem for us. She works at a CU Boulder organization affiliated with NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. We had data for methane measurements that were much lower than the cleanest place on Earth, and that was not realistic. So we brought this to the state's attention. They said they knew about it. But when they uploaded their data to a website with a new Excel spreadsheet, there were still issues. Issues like what? Well, there were some data points that were still lower than the South Pole. Okay, raising your hackles. Yes. Further digging revealed data problems stemmed from a third-party lab that processes Colorado's methane air samples in California. So we did a little bit more digging, uh, did a records request to find out who is this California lab that won this contract. Here's kind of the kicker that we learned from this records request, that the University of Colorado actually had an opportunity to process these samples uh, when the state opened up bidding in 2016. And uh, the CU professor who lost this bid by just $4,000, he now runs a site for Boulder County that really has the highest level of scientific scrutiny. It offers real-time data. So ultimately, this larger issue of this investigation is kind of this question of how can the state say that it's regulating methane emissions from the oil and gas industry when it can't really accurately measure what overall levels are in the air. And, you know, the state has been, uh, let's just say it, boasting about its methane monitoring and the strides it's made. So this is all about whether they have ground to stand on. What did state officials say when you talk to them? You know, I think this is where it gets really interesting, because if you really pick apart what the state is saying about methane and oil and gas, they're talking about reducing leaks at the source, but not overall methane levels. Um, I spoke to John Putnam. He heads up environmental programs for the state of Colorado, and he said that the state's data on methane you know, hey, they're not perfect, is what he said. Officials actually point to other compounds that they are tracking from oil and gas wells that are decreasing. And air monitoring, he said, is not their main charge. We're not investing the kind of massive amounts that NOAA might have available or some of the other research institutions to really finely calibrate that level, because again, that's not our primary task. I think what sort of this back and forth with the state underscores for me is this lag that exists between lawmakers who pass these ambitious climate goals and basically the state of Colorado's Air Pollution Control Division and the way that they're operating. And so we have ambitious, you know, climate policies coming from lawmakers, but what's happening at the Air Pollution Control Division they don't maybe have the resources or the know-how to keep up with monitoring to know, you know, where the starting line is. So, again, how do you know if you're making progress if you're not accurately measuring methane levels in the air? How do you bridge a divide like that, you know, between the goals and the, the execution of them? Well, an easy way to do that is with money. money. Okay. Governor Jared Polis has asked for more money for next budget year to beef up air quality monitoring. Right now, as it stands, this budget request is mostly asking for a couple more full-time positions with a little bit of money going to infrared cameras. Which can detect methane. 
So, you know, some elected officials, though, they say that's really not enough. Elise Jones sits on the Air Quality Control Commission, and she says that the state needs to invest more in science. And that's making sure that we have enough money to fund monitors, to analyze the data, and then to interpret that data and make sure policymakers know what's needed in order to get the positive outcomes we need in terms of climate and public health. Democratic State Senator Steve Fenberg echoed the calls for more budgetary dollars for monitoring. He's also considering introducing legislation next session that would inject more scientific rigor into how the state collects data. You also looked at some of the air quality monitoring systems that communities, including Boulder, have put in place and, you know, contrasted that with what the state does. What did you find there? The place I went to was Boulder County. They have a monitoring system by the reservoir. It's a real-time system that updates methane and volatile organic compounds to a website. And it's become really popular. They've seen tens of thousands of people visit this website. And it was set up by the same University of Colorado Boulder scientist who was underbid by the California oh, lab. Right. You know, I think it gets to kind of another interesting thing that I uncovered in my investigation, which is this growing public interest in air quality monitoring. I had no idea. That people logged onto computers to check out what's in their air. That's right. So to a certain extent, I think you could argue that it's in the public interest to make this kind of air quality data more available to the public rather than just posting an Excel spreadsheet once a year, like what the state currently does. Right, and more and more accurate, of course. Uh, about those calls for money for the state's air monitoring system, what happens next? Well, we're going to be watching conversations in two places. The first is going to happen this week. The Air Quality Control Commission is going to be considering a new rule for oil and gas operators that would further crack down on methane and other air pollutants. One question I have there is, will the state move to more quickly adopt new technologies like this real-time monitoring? Hmm. The longer-term conversation is going to happen next year when the state legislature starts up. Will lawmakers like State Senator Steve Fenberg prioritize funding for state air monitoring on climate? Or is that issue really going to get lost in the shuffle in what will surely be a very chaotic and breakneck pace for the state legislature next year? Grace, thanks for being with us. Thanks. CPR climate and environment reporter Grace Hood on her investigation into methane monitoring. Chairs in the state house are empty because the legislature is not in session. But one chair feels especially empty. It's where rancher and Republican representative Kimmy Lewis sat. She died Friday after her third battle with cancer. I asked the chairman of the Elbert County GOP, Tom Peterson, what stood out about Kimmy as a lawmaker. Oh, my goodness. She was a delight. She was represented eastern Colorado. And if there's any part of Colorado that just supports these legislators that are limited government. It's Kimmy. She was so passionate and had such strong conviction and was yet personable and respected on both sides of the aisle. But people knew exactly where Kimmy stood. So she's uh, just a loss to all involved. Indeed, her district, one of the largest geographic house districts in the state, nine counties, uh, I just want to read this tweet uh, that came shortly after news of her death emerged. Uh, it's from a cattle group saying the U.S. cattle industry suffered a great loss upon the passing of a true cattle industry champion, 
Kimmy Lewis from Kim, Colorado. Yeah, well, Kim is just a small town in southeast Colorado, and if you blink, uh, you've missed it. But Kimmy represented all nine counties extremely well. She put on more miles on her vehicle. And, for example, Elbert County, we were on the north, furthest northern uh, part of her district. She would be with us well into a later part of an evening, stay around for any Q&A after any event or town hall meeting, and uh, then make it back to her home in the evening. And southeastern Colorado cattle country, and she served on, you know, the Ag Committee, and she was a true advocate for the cattle, agricultural, and the property-owning elements and industries of Colorado. I just want to note that earlier this year, she had sponsored legislation that anything labeled meat uh, should have had feet. The reason I say that is there are efforts to create a synthetic meat. She wanted a clear delineation between something that had walked around and something that hadn't. Yeah, absolutely. And now that's Kimmy. And she was a legislator that took the tough position on the tough issues, and uh, she didn't waver. Uh, Kimmy was a person of strong Christian faith, and uh, she got in hot water when she was a brand new legislator. There was an event at the Capitol or at the governor mansion, and the the manger scene did not have baby Jesus. And uh, she put her hand up and said, well, where is baby Jesus? To the kind of the muffled chagrin of those in the the group. And so we're going to miss her. Uh, You know, Kimmy would be the type to say, you know what, Um, I'm in a better place, not because of just some statement, but because of her faith in Jesus Christ. I want to thank you for your time. You bet. Thank you. Tom Peterson, chairman of the Elbert County Republican Party, remembering his friend and colleague Kimmy Lewis. The state representative from Kim, Colorado, died Friday at age 62. A vacancy committee will find Lewis's replacement. And Colorado Matters continues with what makes the steam that comes out of Denver's streets. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News. Hi, I'm Stuart Vanderwill, president of Colorado Public Radio. Everything we are today is a result of community support. You've helped create one of the largest public service institutions in our state, locally owned and committed to producing news that's important to Colorado. This is why your end-of-year gift is so important. When you donate today, you'll fuel ambitious plans to grow this vital service in 2020 and beyond. It's easy to do at CPR.org, and thank you. Each winter, Denver's streets breathe steam. Clouds rise from grates and manholes. They've been part of the city's landscape for more than a century. CPR's Sam Brash tracked down the source and found out why it's in trouble in the age of climate change. All right, I'm standing here uh, in front of a school in downtown Denver, and off in the distance you can see just a little bit of steam rising up out of a manhole. I'm going to see if any people have any idea where it's coming from. I think it would come from the, all the way from the sewers. People go to the bathroom or take a bath. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles <laughs> is what I always think about. Well, underneath us um, is like, well, lava, so I think it may be heat rising from there. I, my little brother asked me what it was, and I didn't know what to tell it. So I told him that they're making clouds for the city, so there will be clouds in the sky. <laughs> All great ideas, but the truth is arguably even cooler. The steam vents from a system of pipes snaking beneath the city. It delivers boiling hot steam to about 120 buildings downtown, feeding laundry machines, cleaning coins at the Denver Mint, and above all, 
heating buildings. And the coolest part? New York, San Francisco, Minneapolis, they all have steam systems. But Denver's has been turning away since 1880, making it the oldest continually operating steam system in the country. So when you say old, it brings in a whole different connotation. Yes, it's historic. It's historic. Yes, thank you. This is Jerome Davis, regional vice president for Excel Energy. The utility owns and operates this historic system. And recently, it made some major upgrades after it retired its oldest steam generating plant. It's always kind of fun to get, get something new. Engineer Tim Brown shows me the main improvement at the Denver steam plant. Gleaming new skyscrapers surround the squat metal building. Inside, there's a new boiler standing about a story and a half tall. Look through a peephole on the side and you can see a blaze of natural gas-fed flames. That's just the fire. So we're boiling water, we're making steam. And here's where the future of Denver's steam system gets a little dicey. These improvements came at a big cost to Denver's steam customers. Last January, Excel asked state regulators to raise rates 40%. They eventually settled on a lower increase, but the price tag has some wondering whether steam can stay viable in Denver. Jerome Davis, the Excel executive, says his company will continue to provide the option. We could easily say, oh, no more, we're not going to provide that service to you anymore. you got to figure something else out. I don't think that's the way you would want to talk to a customer, right? But buildings are leaving the system. In the last decade, about 10% of customers have gone off steam in Denver. And if you want to know why, ask energy consultant Joe Havey. He helps buildings make big changes to their heating or cooling systems. Yeah, I mean, just recently in the last nine months, I'm getting a, an inordinate amount of phone calls about this. And the customers wanted Havy's advice about whether or not to stay on the system. He thinks those concerns could be the beginning of the end for steam in Denver. Buildings will leave the steam system, convert to either gas heat or electric heat, and, and then Excel will be left with fewer and fewer customers, so those steam rates will continue to go even higher. But some say Denver shouldn't throw out its boiled steam with the bathwater. Rob Thornton leads the International District Energy Association. He promotes the basic idea that cities are better off with neighborhood-sized heating and cooling systems. Cities turned this to district energy really as an environmental strategy by centralizing the production. It gave them better control over emissions and eliminated hundreds of coal-fired boilers dotted around the city. Today, scientists think those benefits make the systems a great way for cities to combat climate change. It's efficient, it's easily regulated, and if a city wants to create heat without fossil fuels, say with trash incineration or electricity, it just has to swap out a few big boilers. You know, I don't mean to be like just a total pitch man here. I think the Denver system could continue to be uh, of value to the customers and the city overall. But even with the recent improvements and the global promise of district heating, Denver's system could be doomed. And it's not just the economics. To combat climate change, Denver could soon require electric heating in commercial buildings. And that could finally put an end to the city's 140-year-old underground cloud factory. 
And CPR's Sam Brash there. He's in the studio to clear up any remaining fog. Hi, Sam. <laughs> hey. I'm fascinated to learn that uh, this steam cleans coins at the mint. Right. Uh, Denver's steam system is what's known as a district energy system. Just briefly, what what is that? What's some of the history here? Uh, district energy system is you have a centralized energy production facility, and then you have pipes beneath the neighborhood that supply heat or uh, uh, some sort of cooling agent to the building. So instead of having each energy source being in each building, you have a big one uh, for a whole neighborhood. And as we kind of got into that story, lots of people think that has big benefits for cities, right? It's easier to regulate. Hmm. Uh, You get efficiencies of scales, and that can mean, you know, savings for customers. Um, Also, there's challenges with buildings operating their own heating or cooling systems. Uh, It really, like, costs a lot of money to install a commercial boiler or an AC unit or whatever. Um, And there's safety. So one little detail about Denver's system is that when we were using coal-fired boilers in each and every building, Mm -hmm. one of them blew up in 1895 uh, and killed 22 people in the Gumry Hotel downtown. My goodness. Okay. Yeah. But today we're talking about natural gas, not coal. Exactly. What what sort of effect does a steam heating system like the one in Denver have on reducing carbon emissions? Under the, you know, the city has a climate plan. It does, yeah. And it wants uh, renewable energy by 2030. That's a very ambitious goal. It's not really clear to me yet how the steam system fits into that. Uh-huh. Excel, as a part of an agreement it struck before Colorado's Public Utilities Commission, is going to do an engineering study of the whole system to see, you know, how's it working? Can customers transition off if they want to? What would that take? How much would that cost? I expect through that there's also going to be uh, questions answered about just how environmentally friendly the system is. But around the world, it's clear that district energy is a huge part of different cities' um, ambitions to reduce their climate emissions. The gold standard is Copenhagen, which uses a district energy system to heat 98% of its buildings. And all that heat either comes from trash incineration or excess heat from power plants. So they're recycling energy to heat their buildings, and it's an incredibly efficient way to do that work. I think for me, the the burning or the boiling question is, how does this compare (laughs) to electric heating? Because if if you heat with electricity and you have a clean grid, right? Right. Wouldn't that be... That could be great, right? And at the very worst, even if you don't have a clean grid, you're displacing that pollution outside of cities, right? So that we aren't breathing uh, pollutants from natural gas burning or coal burning, whatever. Um, District heating, like I said, is a great way to recycle electricity. uh, And electric heating, which is basically like I heard it described to me as as toaster oven coils in the ductwork, right? (laughs) Like... Uh, it has that huge advantage of being able to switch over to different sources of energy much more easily. Okay, so that'll be a part of any yeah. analysis. Uh, and then there are these you know, challenges of, of potentially rising costs, a declining customer base. Uh, why would district energy be thriving elsewhere but not here, just briefly? I, I think that's a really good question. It definitely is thriving elsewhere. You have cities like Toronto investing in their similarly old steam heat systems as a way to... Uh, meet their climate goals. Um, I think the answer comes down to Excel. They are looking at this system as something that they need to maintain and not a service that they need to grow and expand and heavily invest in. And I think until that changes, Steam's days are numbered in Denver. One last fact, though, yeah. the National Western Center 
Yeah, is the National Western Center. They're, they're building their own system like they this. They are. And you yeah. see this at, on campuses in similar small places around the country. That will use excess heat from the sewer. So in, again, district energy is a great way to recycle energy. Sam Brash, CPR's climate and environment team member. He reported on Denver's legacy steam heating system. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I got steam heat. I got steam heat. I got but I need your love to keep away the cold I got. At the National Cathedral in Washington the other day, a plaque was unveiled to mark the final resting place of Matthew Shepard. This plaque was installed two decades after the openly gay college student was beaten, tied to a fence, and left for dead in Wyoming. His remains were interred at the National Cathedral just last year. Shepard's murder shocked the country and gave an enormous boost to the fight against hate crimes. His parents, Judy and Dennis, founded the Matthew Shepard Foundation, which is based in Denver. It works on causes like social justice, diversity, and LGBTQ equality. The Shepherds joined me earlier this year from their home in Casper, Wyoming. This was just before the Anti-Defamation League honored them as civil rights champions. How soon after his death did you know you dedicate the rest of your lives to this? Well, even when Matt was still in the hospital, we knew we needed to do something. The communications... We'd been getting from parents and members of the community who were like, please use this moment in time when people will be listening to you to express your hope that other parents will accept their children. Because as accepting parents, it was a little unusual maybe in the late 90s to be accepting, and they wanted us to remind people how important it is to love your kids. And maybe they would rethink uh, that they needed their children back in their family because at least they still had their children. So even when Matt was still in the hospital, we knew if the opportunity came up, we would take advantage of it. And we started the foundation on Matt's birthday, December 1st, 1998, about two months after he passed. Oh, my. Certainly didn't think it was going to be dedicating the rest of our lives. We thought two years, maybe, people would remember Matt and Matt's story. So the notion that it was dedicating our lives to this work, we would do it in whatever way we could, but probably not in the way we're doing it now. I mean, I, I would be the P-flag mom making cookies, not the P-flag mom at the podium. P-flag is an organization for parents and friends of lesbians and gays. Dennis, were you surprised by how quickly Matthew's story went global and how profoundly it affected people? Well, we were rather shocked because we were in Saudi at the time, and I was working over there. And what happened was the initial response we got was that he has severe head injuries and we thought it was a vehicle accident. So that's all we thought about all the way back over. It took almost 50 hours to get back hmm. with all the layovers and the fact that this we got the call at 5 in the morning and we couldn't leave till after midnight. And then with the layovers and the flights and everything. So we, we just thought it was a vehicle accident until we got to Minneapolis to pick up our other son and and Judy's sister and niece met us at the uh, jetway. He said his story is all over the internet, radio, newspaper, everything, news, TV. He said, for what, a car accident? She said, well, it's not a car accident. Hmm. And um, it just exploded. And we were rather shocked then, and we still are. It's just, 
he seems to be the kid next door. Everybody can relate to it. it doesn't matter your religion or your your gender or whatever, uh, your race. They could all pick out something in there that reminded them of of themselves or or a close friend or a relative, and it just has stayed that way ever since. This award from the ADL specifically mentions the passage of the Hate Crimes Prevention Act of 2009, which you and Judy helped make happen. Has that law made it... Well, let me correct you right there. Yes, please. I didn't help make anything happen. Judy did it. I was back in Saudi Arabia for 12 more years Hmm. to pay the bills. It was Judy's work that did that, not mine. Judy, has that law made a difference? I would say yes, it has, symbolically at least, given a route for members of the LGBT community to seek justice if the states they live in do not do that. Five states have no hate crime laws. Of the states that do, not all of them cover the LGBTQ plus community. So this was a backstop to protect them. But there have been successful prosecutions. There have been challenges to it that have not succeeded. So I feel confident that this will... um, this will stay on the books as it is. I, it actually has a fatal flaw in that it doesn't require reporting because without required reporting, we really don't know where the issues are. No numbers, no problems. So um, this is something we're trying to address now. Talk to me just a bit more about the reporting. So according to FBI data in 2017, about 16% of reported hate crimes were related to a person's sexual orientation. But I have a feeling you think that's underreported. Oh, absolutely, without question. Let's just start at the states where you can be fired from your job for being gay. Why would you report a hate crime if you're in danger of being outed and losing your job? And maybe you're not out to your family either. This is a, this is a serious problem. The only way we can protect those folks is to do federal job protections um, like we do for everybody else in this country. Also, if members of the community fear retaliation, re-victimization from officers, um, they're afraid of the reactions they're going to get. Plus, it takes time for hate crimes to be investigated and prosecuted, and oftentimes they lose patience. So this is a, this is a problem that can be addressed, but it's going to take the cooperation of everybody involved. We don't currently place enough importance on hate crimes We were starting to get there in the previous administration, but right now they've definitely taken a back seat. So until we make them important again, underreporting is going to continue, and not just for the gay community, but marginalized communities, uh, Muslims, immigrants, refugees, uh, anybody in fear of another reason to be re-victimized by another entity is a reason for them not to want to report. Dennis, back in October, Matthew was laid to rest at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., and I just want to play a few of your words from the ceremony. It's so important that we now have a home for Matt, a home that others can visit, a home that is safe from haters. Can you help us understand what you mean by the haters? Was Matt's grave being desecrated? He was never in a grave. We kept his ashes here because we wanted to scatter him in Wyoming, but his younger brother said, I need a place to go to visit him, and we didn't want to separate the ashes. So we kept him here, and we didn't want to put his ashes any place where 
there was a chance of vandalism. And we knew it would happen. As soon as you got out of sight, there'd be somebody in there either tearing up the headstones or throwing paint or doing something to vandalize it and destroy it and desecrate it. And so we were having a, a tough problem deciding what we were going to do. And the cathedral was the perfect solution because it allows everybody to go there. It's a safe place for them to reflect uh, on their lives and their friends and family and to think about Matt and what he, his sacrifice did for others. But it also shows the country that there is a, a national cathedral which represents the entire country that is all-inclusive and accepts everybody. When you say that you had fears there would be vandalism if he were buried somewhere sort of accessible, maybe in Wyoming, what, what do you base those fears on? Well, based on the history of what's happened since we lost him. And not just LGBTQ, but look at the synagogues, look at the, the race, the religion, everything. They are still having problems. And with this administration, they've just gotten worse. And so we knew that would happen. And when you're in a state like Wyoming, Judy mentioned there are five states with no hate crime laws whatsoever. Former southern states... Indiana, Georgia, South Carolina, and Arkansas. The other is Wyoming. So the, the motto is the equality state, and there is no equality here for all its citizens, just like there is no equality throughout the country for all of its citizens. Is it hard to, in your own backyard, where Matthew died, not to have seen that change? It's, it's rather demoralizing, depressing, and disgusting, actually, here you have a state that is crying now because of the energy problem. They used to be in, in the black, uh, money-wise budget. Now they're in the red, and now they want to diversify their economy. They're not going to do it until they have a hate crime law and a, and a uh, job discrimination protection law for all of its citizens because no corporation is coming in here if they can't hire the best. And right now they can't because they can't protect them. Judy, what is the nature of your work now? What are you most focused on in terms of policy change or social change? Oh, gosh, I think they're kind of the same. Policy change only works if you can get the social change to come along with it. Uh, once you've got to get the policy in effect first. So we got the hate crime bill in the law now, and um, we're focusing, again, on hate crime education. We do conferences around the country working with local law enforcement and non-government organizations community organizations, citizens, anybody who's interested in finding out what the hate crime law does and doesn't do, explaining how to investigate, um, how to prosecute, actually the definition of what a hate crime is. So that's our focus right now. Colorado, where the Matthew Shepard Foundation has a, an important office, and I, I think where Matt lived for a time, he was in Denver at a, for a period of time, right? Right. Yeah. Colorado just swore in an openly gay governor. The state also has its the state also has its it's first great. openly transgender lawmaker. Are these milestones that y- you think Matthew would have envisioned, could have envisioned? No, I, I don't think. Well, he was only 21. I'm not sure those kinds of things were on his radar yet. Uh, marriage definitely was. Uh, we had had that discussion the summer of 98 when Hawaii was discussing uh, same-sex marriage. But the rest, I'm not really sure, was on his radar yet in any way where he thought it was achievable um, yet. 
And the Denver did the uh, conversion therapy ban, another huge step, especially considering where Colorado was not that many years ago. This is a ban on the type of therapy that attempts to make gay people straight, which has largely been scientifically debunked. Oh, it's, it's a torture session. Do you remember what it was like when Matt came out to you? It was like, finally. <laughs> finally, you're going you're gonna to tell us who you are? Yay! Um, I had had a strong suspicion since he was about eight years old that he might be gay. And so when he did come out to me, he was uh, 18, a college freshman, on the phone when we were living in Saudi, um, I was relieved that he was ready to be himself. Matthew has been gone as long as he was alive. Uh, 21, much. 21 years. What is the nature of grief 21 years later? You know, that's a really good question. It doesn't go away. The concept of closure is, uh, is a joke. It just gets different. Rose Kennedy used to refer to it as the scab you continually remove. You think you're healing and then something happens and you realize you're not. You just learn to build your life around the wound. Dennis, 21 years later, what is the nature of grief for you? It's more anger that somebody decided to be judge, jury, and executioner against somebody who was different. Well, we're all different. They didn't look in the mirror and see how they were and what they looked like. And so you take the grief, you live with it, but you take the anger and you focus it. And that's all we're trying to do is help these young people have a better life so they're all considered equal and they get an equal chance to succeed. Thanks for being with us. Of course. It's uh, our pleasure. Thank you. Judy and Dennis Shepard speaking with me back in January. They're the parents of Matthew Shepard, the gay 21-year-old who was murdered in 1998 in Wyoming. The Matthew Shepard Foundation is based in Denver. A plaque honoring Shepard was installed last week at his final resting place, the National Cathedral in Washington. that's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for spending time with us. You can follow the show at Colorado Matters on Twitter. I'm at CPR Warner. This is CPR News.